Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. We are uh, on the second week of a series we're just calling Ecclesia, and it's just simply a study um, of, the, of the church. As you're finding your way there uh, in the darkness of this room, let there be light at some point. But um, I want to say thanks to uh, Matt Getty last week for uh, standing in my place. I'm grateful that the elders... Uh, give me time to to be off and to be away, and I'm grateful uh, more so than that that uh, a guy like Matt can stand in, and uh, he delivered a fantastic word uh, this past week. And I was super proud of him. It was challenging, convicting for me personally, and uh, and what the God, what the Lord uh, did. Um, Nathan, can you get some lights on so they can see their Bibles this morning? Uh, Matthew chapter 3, we're talking this morning in this series on what the church is. We're trying to discuss or trying to figure out, I guess, if you will, uh, what the church is supposed to be, how we're supposed to function, uh, how we're supposed to talk about things like believers' baptism, church membership. Um, what does it mean to be the church? What's the gospel? Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to experience the Lord's Supper together, where we're going to have an entire service around the Lord's Supper and take our time and uh, just to sit uh, slowly and to sort of feast on the Word. This morning, uh, there we go, uh, I'm going to bring us in Matthew chapter 3 to talk about believers' baptism. You are at a Baptist church, if you didn't know that, but I realize that many of you uh, come from a variety of backgrounds, some Presbyterian, Catholic, uh, even some Church of Christ. And we oftentimes, I'll falsely assume that we are all on the same page when it comes to baptism and what it is. And so part of what this series is, is sort of get us in alignment as we begin to regather as a church, begin to focus on God's word uh, and begin to look at it. Now, we find ourselves in Matthew 3, and we are going to talk about this guy named John the Baptist, who is a peculiar guy. Now, how many of you know, just by show of hands, uh, some, some very strange, peculiar people uh, in your life? You've met some very weird people before. A show of hands, right? Uh, all right, put your hand down. How do you say the person sitting next to you qualifies as that person, right? Fair enough, right? So when I was in college, uh, there was this guy who kind of became a legend. Uh, Haley has no idea who I'm about to talk about. Uh, he became a legend on our campus because when I was a sophomore, he came in as a freshman and you would see him walking across campus with no tennis shoes on. He'd go barefoot. He'd show up to class with no shoes on. Now, as if that wasn't strange enough, uh, you would also see him in between class periods going to class and he had no shoes on. Um, and he'd be sprinting. You'd see him walking, he's casually talking with people, and then he would just take off at a full-on sprint and be like, that's really weird, man. Like, why are you doing that? Now, to make matters worse, he would be barefoot, and not that he didn't have any shoes, he had shoes, all right, he had means. He had no shoes on, he would randomly sprint across the, the, the field, but then sometimes you'd see him in trees, like hanging upside down, like swinging, right? Haley, you remember who I'm talking about now, right? Well, Clearly, this guy was a philosophy major at the school. They always are the weird ones, okay? And he was just strange. Now, the, the good ending to the story was he went on and finished his undergrad, went on and did a master's. He has a PhD, and TCU wouldn't hire him, but Baylor decided to hire him in their philosophy department. And so he's down there just cranking it out now, uh, living his best life with no shoes and probably still swinging in trees. He was just weird. And I've come across my lifetime, they're just, sometimes people are just strange, they're just different. 
And for whatever background it is, they just don't quite fit in. And, and here in Matthew 3, we pick up with a guy who did not, and I mean absolutely did not, fit in whatsoever. Strange what he ate, how he dressed, and more specifically, what he talked about. Look in verse 1 of Matthew 3, and the text says this. Matthew begins to write, and he says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Basically, John the Baptist was the guy that walked around with no shoes, sprinting across campus, hanging upside down in trees. He didn't fit in because he wasn't a normal religious teacher. He didn't talk about things and preach about things in the same way. He spoke about the kingdom of God, that it's near, not far away. And he began to call people to this posture of, of repentance. Now, here's the unique thing about John's message. He really only had one message. And it was the same message that he preached over and over and over and over and over again. The message was this, first, in your life, you need to repent. Number one, you need to practice a posture of repenting. Number two, when you get done repenting the first time, and when you get through practicing that posture of repentance, rule number two in John's message was you need to repent again. And once you get done repenting the second time, the kingdom of hand is still at, at near. And the third thing in John's sermons that overwhelmingly characterized his message is repent once, repent twice, and repent a third time. Over and over and over and over, this is what his message was to these people who had cloaked themselves in this sense of, of religion and had sort of begun to deceive themselves who they were and not understanding who they were in light of who God was. Now, as he's preaching this, he begins to draw a crowd. I don't know how many of you know this, but um, in today's world of, of church life, if preachers get up from the pulpit and all they tell people to do is repent, and then when you get done repenting, repent again, and then when you get done the second time, repent again, it's a pretty quick way that you're going to push people away, not draw people in. This is not a good strategy for church growth, right? Like nobody wants to be challenged and say, hey, listen, what you're doing and how you're thinking, it doesn't line up with scripture. And, and according to the Bible, we need to walk in, in humility and we need to confess our sins before God who's faithful and just, repent of those sins, let God forgive us. And then we're gonna come back to the well, we're gonna drink, let God change us and move us. But if you do that over and over and over again, more often than not, your crowds are gonna disperse rather than come to. And so the temptation for a lot of preachers is we don't talk about it. Even within Baptist circles, frankly, we're, we're not that great at, at talking about repentance and, and what it is. And so John the Baptist begins to call the people of God to, to this posture. Now, the question that we have to answer then is why in the world would John preach the same message over and over and over and over and over again? And the simple answer is this. Because John understood that the problem wasn't that religious people didn't know enough, 
but rather they weren't already obedient in what they did know. So the reason why John repeats this message over and over and over again, it's not because they don't know and, and can't define repentance. It's not they can't parse it in the Greek or, or wrestle through it with the Hebrew or do a big biblical theology overview or, and weave it into a systematic uh, theology textbook and do a Bible study about it on Wednesday night. It wasn't that they didn't understand it, it's that they weren't practicing it. They knew it, but they weren't walking according to the things that they knew. And so John says, listen, we got to be a people that, that understand uh, what it means to repent, but then we have to obey it. One of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite preachers and, and teachers of all time is by a guy named Thomas Watson, who famously said this about repentance. He said, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Repentance. As John talks about, it's a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Reform. A couple of things about this. I think one of the reasons why we don't talk about repentance and because it's so off-putting for us to, to speak about it is that we misunderstand repentance. You see, many of us believe that when we hear preachers and teachers say, repent, 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 that we leave people in this place of, of condemnation and shame. And what we fail to recognize about repentance, which is really foundational to the whole doctrine of the word, is just simply this. When we repent, it is God demonstrating his grace upon our life that we have been shown through the Holy Spirit where we need to change. And when we realize where God has called us to change, that is because God has shown that thing to us. And that is nothing but the grace and the mercy. And don't miss this. That is the kindness of our God. That is the kindness of your God in your life when he says, listen, brother, I love you, Andrew. But, but listen, there's some things in your life that you need to change. And then Andrew begins to identify those things. And then he begins to, to turn in, in obedience because his heart is changed first. And then his physical action follows. Here's another thing about repentance. Is that we, we, we try in, in this day and age, we, we want to be careful that we don't ever preach a, a moral gospel, that the gospel is all about outward perfunctory actions. Like, don't do this and don't do that. Like, like there's some truth to that. But where we've missed it is the idea that we want to attack the heart of things and, and get to why do we do the certain things that we do. But what we've seen now is it swung to the other side where we'll say things like this. And I see this in young teachers and seminary students and young pastors that it, don't judge me because it's all about my heart and that this inward heart change doesn't ultimately lead to some outward physical change in my life as well. So listen to me. If you have been changed by the gospel. And if you would say today that I'm a Christian following Christ, your inward heart is changing, your motivation is changing. But friends and brothers and sisters, your outward uh, actions will demonstrate the validity of the change in your heart. Not that you're proving it to me or proving it to anyone else, but if God's really changed your heart and made you new and given you new birth, then that means your actions are going to follow that and they'll be demonstrated from that. Morally, you're going to change a little bit. It may be slow and you may take some steps backwards, but, but God will change the heart and then physically he's going to change how we live. And Southern Baptists for so long focused on how we lived that we forgot to speak to the, to the heart of, of how it is we go about changing. And, and my contention this morning is we just need to have both. 
Both of these need to be equally asked for and, and because they're demanded from in, in Scripture. And so repentance is this grace. It's this gift that God gives and he, and he shows his people. But look in verse 7 as we keep reading. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Turn to your neighbor and say, uh, brood of vipers. It's not a very kind way to, to greet your neighbor, is it? You viper. You ever been called a snake, right? Uh, it's like the lowest of the low, right? That's not the way that you win lost people, right? You don't go to your neighbor at, at TCU or at TCC or the person you work with and go, bro, you're just kind of a viper. I don't know what to say about you. Like you got problems. Like nobody wins anyone to the Lord talking like that. But here they come and they, they're going to see what John's message is. And they're like, uh, he, he, he sees these religious people that come. And he, remember, he's the guy that's in, that's in bare feet hanging from trees that sprints across campus. He's eating locusts and, and wild honey. And he smells and he stinks and his clothing is totally different. And here he is preaching a message about repenting of, of sins and, and not failing to meet the mark of, of God's standard. And so then they come and he's like, you guys are a bunch of snakes. What are you doing here? Like, it's not a very compelling way to win friends and influence people, is it? Like, that's not the way that we would learn in an evangelism class for teaching that. Like, you don't do things like that because it's off-putting. He goes on, he says, who warns you in verse seven to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in doing what? Keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, or we're the chosen people, like we're better than you, John. Don't presume to say that, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down, and he's thrown into the fire. Like, John straight up preaches a hellfire and brimstone sermon to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he doesn't like step on their toes. He stomps on their toes. He doesn't nudge them. He punches them right in the, in the stomach as hard as he can. He doesn't push their face away very subtly. He full knuckle and he just gives it to them. Kick them in the teeth. Who told you these things? Repent and, and practice these, these postures. And, and one of the things I think when we back out of this and we see that first and foremost, who he's talking to, listen to me, when he says the Pharisees and the Sadducees showed up, friends, if you didn't know this, these were the religious, spiritual people of the day. These would have been the most pretentious people that you have ever been around. Like you thought you've been around fake people before. Like these guys excelled at quoting scripture, knowing the Bible. They knew their theology. And here they were to condemn John's message. And John begins to speak to them. And one of the things we begin to learn from this that we need to grapple with today as a church and as a people is this. Religion. Religion is often the cover for true repentance. What I mean by that is as a people today, we can play the game and have a sense of gamemanship about coming to church, serving, giving, being a deacon, being a pastor, being a lead teaching 
pastor, a seminary student, a faithful attender. We can do all of these things and get lost in the motion of the religious nature of it that we forget about the personal aspect of just knowing Jesus and walking with him and the sweetness that comes from that. That it becomes all about checking things off of boxes so that we're perceived in, in certain ways and, and that we want to be seen as religious or seen as spiritual, all devoid of a relationship with, with walking with Jesus. Listen, religion keeps a lot of people from ever dealing with the root problems that exist within their heart. It can be a very dangerous thing. Because if I stay busy enough, Listen to me. If I stay busy enough for the church and the kingdom and everybody sees me acting one way, they're never going to ask me how my heart really is. Because outwardly, everything looks good. Everything that I demonstrate and that I show, it's spot on. So if I can be busy enough, Nobody will ever really ask me or I won't have time to stop and get to the heart of the matter within my own heart and within my own spirit and soul as to why I'm walking in a way that's disobedient that really nobody else can know or see but me. Maybe my wife, maybe my kids, maybe some of the guys that I, that I walk closely with, maybe they will see those things, maybe, but, but in ways we're all great deceivers at times, are we not? We can even most certainly deceive ourselves. Well, Jesus goes on and he says in verse 11, he says, listen, I baptize you. We're talking about baptism, right? I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than, than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he's going to burn up with unquenchable fire. And so uh, make no mistake about this statement that John makes about Jesus, that Jesus affirms later on, and we see this throughout the New Testament. Listen to me. There absolutely 100% is no middle ground when it comes to following Jesus. He says, I'm going to separate the wheat from the chaff. I'm going to put it on my threshing floor. And those who really are mine are coming with me. And those who have been pretenders, they're not. And I don't know if you're a pretender or if you're real. You don't know if I'm a pretender or, or, or I'm real. Only the Lord God knows that. And we judge by fruit. But we each have to come to terms with that before our God and to make sure, am I the wheat or am I the tare? Do I really know him and, and have a relationship with him and pursuing him or, or am I just playing games? Am I coming because I want to hook up with this person or be with this person? Or I want to be seen in this way or I want to be seen that way. What's my motivation behind me doing the things that I, that I do? And, and he just simply says, these things will be separated and these things will be taken care of. Verse 13 says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to baptize you. He know, John knows who Jesus is and, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he goes up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to him to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, a whole bunch of things happen in this moment. 
One of the first things I want you to notice is the location of Jesus's baptism. Where was the location of the baptism according to the text? He says he went to the Jordan River, right? Well, those of you guys that know Old Testament, you'll remember this, that the Jordan River was the river that the Israelites crossed when they left the wilderness for punishment. So God frees them from captivity in Egypt. They, they make some bad mistakes. And so the Lord's like, you know what? You're going to wander around for 40 years. Generations are going to be lost. You're not ever going to see the promised land. Your children won't see it, but maybe your children's children will see it. And for 40 years, they wander around in the wilderness. But when God finally delivers them into the promised land, they cross the Jordan, close to the location that, that Jesus was baptized by John. And the reason why that is significant is because when Jesus is baptized, it's signifying in a couple of different ways what he does, the, the judgment of, of people that he takes upon himself and he cleanses us, not himself, by the washing of the word. And it's symbolically reminding us of God's punishment for disobedience, but also the promise of eternal life in the promised land that you cross in and being so. When we get to verse 16, notice where he says this, Jesus was baptized and when he comes up from the water, the heavens open up and he sees the spirit of God descending like a dove. And I read six different commentaries this week trying to understand if it was literally a dove or some other kind of bird and, and scholars sort of disagree if it was literally a bird because it, it says it was like a dove. And so it was some kind of symbolic thing that was gestured. And the idea was it is meant to point us back to connect a couple of things. So you remember in Genesis one, when God creates and his spirit sort of hovers over the earth and it's sort of roaming around, it's sort of meant to bring us back to this place. It's meant to bring us to Genesis eight where the, the, the world is flooded. Noah's in the ark with all the animals. <coughs> he starts to look for land. And what is the thing that Noah does to begin to search for land? He releases the doves. And here are the doves searching for peace and new life as the waters just sort of rage underneath them because he's punishing the world for sin. And so he floods the earth and then praise the Lord. He promises at the end of that to never flood the earth again. And so it says the spirit of God descends upon him and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, verse 17 is really the whole point of the whole passage. It's the inauguration of Jesus's public ministry into life. In other words, as one scholar put it this way, Jesus at his baptism was beginning a ministry of substitution. And so one author described it this way. He said, as Jesus enters into the, to the waters, because the question comes up, why did Jesus need to be baptized? The, que the answer to that question is really simple. Jesus did not need to be baptized. But instead, it's as if you can imagine metaphorically here, as the crowd comes around, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they're watching John and Jesus enters into the water it is almost as if Jesus is going up to the different people and he's taking off their name tags of sin, the adulterer, the liar, the murderer, the deceiver, the one who would mock God, the scoffer. And he's taking that name tag and he's putting it upon himself and then, and then he replaces the existing name tag with righteous, beloved, 
And so as he enters into the waters, he, he symbolically enters into the, the baptistry waters, baptized by John, not to atone for his sins in any way, and not because he needed to, but rather symbolically as the gesture, because we needed him to. Jesus did not need to repent, but friends, we did. And so there he enters into the Jordan, repenting of of our sins symbolically, not his sins, and ultimately leading him down a path that would lead him to a place called Golgotha, Skull Hill, where he would be crushed, where God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, to take a beating his back laid bare by a whip, beaten so severely and badly that his intestines began to protrude from his abdomen. A crown of thorns laid upon his head to where his face became unrecognizable, nine-inch nails put in his hands and and in his feet, and, and he was horribly disfigured in the most vile, disgusting, demeaning way that one could be defiled. And you ask, why would you describe that to us today? Because that picture of his sacrifice is meant to be a reminder of how disgusting our sin is before God. how deeply depraved we we are as a people apart from Christ and apart from being renewed and, and being made new by him. It's this ministry of substitution, this recognition that I need him. I love how one author put it this way. He said, if I were to describe the gospel just in four words, I just simply would say, Jesus in my place. When we talk about the need for for Christ, it it needs to be Christ in my my place because I can't do for myself what only Christ can do. And so I need him. So I go back to John's message. How do I know I need him? Because I'm constantly repenting and I know I need to repent. But I want to tell you something about repentance, friends. Some of my friends that, that lean in, in certain directions theologically, uh, maybe in the more reformed camp, you, sometimes you guys miss this. Listen to me carefully. I'm going to dot you right between your eyes. The gospel of Jesus does not ever leave us in shame and in condemnation. Do you know that? It never leaves people there. It may bring us to a place where we feel shame and we feel condemnation, but we don't stay there as people. And Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we would linger there and and beat up ourselves and linger in in feeling condemned by, by ourselves and by the world and by our friends. He never leaves us there, ever. But he says, repent. And he says, believe. The gospel of Jesus, friend, it's a good news that we have to understand the bad news 100%, but, but as soon as we understand that and realize that, people in this world, they need hope. They need deliverance. And, and, I, and I'm all for telling them the bad news. I, I, we were talking about bad news this morning, but, but people crying out loud, we need good news. And we are agents and messengers of good news, not browbeating and condemnation and not shame. Jesus in my place. So what do we learn from this? 
Jesus' baptism and how we understand it, essentially, this is Jesus not merely dying for us, but rather instead of us, and he takes these name tags of sin off, and so we can wear this name tag of righteousness. But there's four things about, three, four things about baptism that I want you to remember this morning. Number one is this. Baptism means you publicly de- declare not only your faith in Christ, but your repentance of your sins. And I think Baptists have whiffed this, that we talk about it's, it's public declaration of faith, and it is that, but it is also a declaration of repentance. So when I enter into the baptistry, I'm, I'm demonstrating to people that I've repented of my sins publicly. And technically, baptism comes fairly shortly after you make a profession of faith. And so you're demonstrating obedience as you enter into the baptistry waters, declaring that you have repented of your sins, not that you won't ever sin again, but rather all of your past, present, and future sins, you are declaring that God in Christ has forgiven you and you are repenting of those and turning and pursuing a different direction. And so here's the challenging part of that statement that that some of you, I want you to remember and to hear this morning. If your life today does not look different post-baptism and your life doesn't look changed since when you got baptized, then your baptism was not a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of something else. And I don't know what it was, and only you know that, but if your life is not not different and you're not moving along, now listen to me, that doesn't mean that you had to commit terrible things before Christ. You might have got saved at an early age, and, and maybe your life doesn't look totally radically different. By the grace of God, thank the Lord that God spared you from those things. But at the same time, If your baptism was for any other reason other than by faith in Christ, my my sins have been forgiven and I'm repenting of my sins and I'm publicly declaring that. If it was for your your mom or your dad or or your pastor or maybe you got tricked into it by a minister and felt pressured or or you just did it and, and you had no idea what it was, then friends, it was not a biblical baptism by repentance and by faith and we should question that. We, we need to question that. Number two is this. According to the Bible, baptism is by immersion. So the word baptize, it literally means to immerse It means to plunge, it means to soak, it means to fully go under. Years ago, I baptized a college student at our previous church and um, we made two mistakes that morning. Number one, the guy that was in charge of filling up the baptistry did not fill the baptistry up all the way. I didn't know that. I got in it and thought I can handle this. Number two, the person I was baptizing failed to tell me that they were terrified of going underwater but they were walking in obedience. So I didn't have enough water in the baptistry (coughs) and the girl we were baptizing was terrified of going underwater. And so I get up there, I do my pastor thing, start talking about it, explain it. It was theologically accurate. You seminary students would be proud. Professors say thumbs up, get her down in there. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you, I take her down. As soon as the water hits her face, again, remember, there wasn't enough water in the tank and she's terrified of water. She begins to fight me and begins to possess the power of five demons. And so I take her down and I feel her hesitate and apparently she does a lot of core workout because she stares coming up and I start bearing down. 
like triceps and everything was engaged to get her underwater. In a matter of about five or six seconds, I knew that there was no way I was going to fully immerse her. And so she comes up out of the water and she had this really frizzy hair and the back of it was all wet, but the front of it was still frizzy. And you could tell that she didn't get under. And so that moment I did what any pastor did, I just went, that's a valid baptism. We're going to move on. <laughs> but I joked with her afterwards and said, listen, I don't know that one counts. And we said before the Lord, we joked and, and obviously it did. And that was our intention. And it was sort of a big fumble. And uh, a young pastor learned a hard lesson that I need to lift more weights to get her underwater next time. But um, it means immersion. And so it's why as Baptists here, some of you may come from Presbyterian backgrounds or Catholic backgrounds. You just need to hear this. We believe the biblical uh, guide and, and, and faithfulness is baptism going all the way under, and it requires someone to understand repentance in order to do that. So it's why as Baptists, we don't baptize babies. It's why as Baptists, when a young, young, young child comes to faith, we'll, we'll typically wait for a little bit to make sure that they, they do understand to a degree, not everything, but to a degree, the gospel and, and repentance and faith. But baptism is by immersion. Number three is this. Baptism is not a condition of salvation, but rather it is evidence of it. So in other words, it's, it's like this little ring that I wear on my finger this ring doesn't mean I'm married. Like it does, it's not the thing that ultimately marries and says I'm married to Haley. Really, honestly, it doesn't even have to do with the state. One of my pet peeves in, in weddings is when preachers say, by the power invested in me by the state of Texas. Well, you're, you're given that authority through the Lord, not the state. But this ring is just a symbol. I'm married to my wife. I, I'm hers and she's, she's mine. But this ring is a symbol of that. Now, I've tried to convince my wife unconvincingly. We're not against tattoos. If you have tattoos, no judgment. I've, I've told her I really would like to have just a tattoo on my finger so I can quit wearing a ring all the time. But just have it on there, right? And we'll do it. Uh, she said that wouldn't be very pastoral. But it symbolizes my commitment to her. It's an outward symbol of an inward commitment that I've, that I've made. And this is what baptism is. It's just simply an outward symbol of this commitment of repentance and faith that I'm making before my, my family and my friends. And the reason why we do it in front of our church is this, is because it says, hey, I, I'm following Jesus. I've trusted him. I want you now to help me grow in my faith. So this is why we baptize, not on remote beaches or in the privacy of homes, but we do it in front of our church body. So they can come alongside us and go, I'm serious about, about following him. I can read you stories of missionaries around the world that, that will make professions of faith and, and families that are non-Christians will dismiss it. But the moment, the very moment they get baptized, they are excommunicated from their family. Because then they know, even non-believers know, they just got serious. So baptism doesn't save us in any of those ways, but is rather a condition. It's just evidence. It's not the condition of salvation. Fourthly, and to close, baptism just simply, uh, and, and no other better way to say it, it's just important. And what I mean by that is, is that I think for some of you, If baptism being the first step of obedience after salvation, I think one of the reasons why many of us sometimes when we, we don't walk in obedience with God, listen to me, we forfeit oftentimes the blessings of God. 
Like blessings do come with obedience. That's not a prosperity gospel statement. That is a Psalms saturated in the gospel. Blessings come with obedience. And guess what? I think some of you this morning need to practice that obedience through baptism. I think some of you misunderstood it the first time you did it. I think some of you perhaps leaned into your mom and dad's faith or felt pressured about it if you really examined yourself. And I'm gonna pose this question to you and I'm, I'm, I'm meaning it to, to make you think and to, and to process and, and to pause. I'm not trying to confuse you. But just simply say, are you being obedient to what God would want you to do? And, and, and why not in this day and age would you not want to be baptized? To publicly identify with Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, to have your church come alongside you and to say, I want to support you. And, 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 but, but most importantly, as a believer, to just simply say, I want to be obedient to the scriptures. To let that be my primary motivation and understanding it, it rightly, repentance and faith together, working alongside each other. So my challenge to you this morning is just simply this. I'm, I'm speaking particularly to some of you who, who've been holding out. Why not? Why would you not have a right understanding and to practice obedience and to allow the blessings that come with walking faithfully with God? My second challenge to you is this, and I'll close with this. Jeffrey and his team can come on up. Is there any aspect this morning of religion in your life that is getting in the way of your walk with Jesus? Is your relationship with the Lord dependent upon anything else other than just that, the very essence of a relationship with Jesus? It could be your family, it could be your job, it could be your money, your, your lack of money, too much money. It could be your, your talent, it could be your focus, your attention. It could be any of those things. And I plead with you, I implore you as, as your pastor and, and someone who gets to stand in this, this pulpit to, to toss those things to the side and just sit at the feet of Jesus. To sit at his word, and let it be spoken and read over you and to let it change you because it's the only thing that will ever change his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. The Father in heaven, we ask that um, you inhabit our, our praises, you inhabit our thoughts and how we feel in this time. Lord, our hearts cry that we would just be a faithful people, faithful to your word and walking in obedience. And so, Lord, I pray now that your spirit would, would come, not and condemn us and to leave us there, not to leave us in shame, but, Lord, to bring us to the good news, the good, glorious news of your gospel. But, Father, I pray if there are some in here that just need to repent, like John's message was, to just repent of their sins, I pray they would do that, forsake those sins. I pray, God, that they would call upon your name and just say these words, God, save me. Save me from my sins. God, would you save us now? Would your spirit fill this room 
as we sing to you and respond and make much of you. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.